You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff. And uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad. Uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks. So they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes. Uh, and these things are high quality and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. I remember as a kid, my parents taking me up to Cherokee, North Carolina to, uh, see the, um, shops and the Indian chief sitting next to the TP outside of one of the shops and, uh, the trinkets and all those kinds of things. And we, and we saw a production, uh, kind of at an outdoor amphitheater type thing, if I'm remembering correctly called unto these Hills. And it was kind of an homage or a demonstration of, uh, native American lore, uh, specifically, I guess, from the Cherokee tribe, uh, and the dancing and singing and, uh, the things that would accompany that, uh, as well as some of their beliefs, some of the mythology that went along with um, uh, mythology and spirituality, I should say, of uh, of the Cherokee. Uh, well, a number of years ago, uh, I was well into adulthood and had kids of my own by, by this point. Uh, I was privileged to visit the Tahana Autumn uh, nation that spans the border uh, between Arizona and Mexico. And in fact, the uh, the national border of the United States and Mexico runs through the reservation and um, got to meet some folks there as well as attend uh, a church that had been operating in uh, cells, Arizona, for some number of years <clears throat> and uh, met one of the local pastors there who was himself Native American. Uh, if you ever heard Johnny Cash's song, Ira Hayes, uh, about the Native American who was uh, on the Enola Gay airplane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, then uh, then that's the, that's the nation that he was a part of. And so there's some memorials there to him and that kind of thing. Uh, nonetheless, there, there's been this uh, ongoing interest in my life, and as I've read American history and Native American history and um, tried to pay more attention to what happened, uh, especially in those early years prior to Manifest Destiny, after Manifest Destiny, um, the Puritans and all these kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> I've just wondered over the years, uh, as I've learned about all this, especially the spirituality side of American uh, Native Americans. Uh, so my guest today is going to be talking about that, but from an angle that, that uh, was a shock to me when I first saw his book, um, it's G.K. Chesterton's view and G.K. Chesterton's writing uh, and how he um, affirmed so much of Native American spirituality uh, because he saw in it um, aspects of Christianity. So my guest today is uh, Dr. Matt Milner. He is um, a professor at Wheaton University, and he's written a book uh, that deals with G.K. Chesterton and the First Nations. It's called The Everlasting People, 
And I think that you're going to enjoy this conversation today. Well, my guest today is a art historian. So, so I'm going to ask you this right out of the gate. Are you a fan of the West Wing, the TV show? You know, I watched it when it was first rolling out. Not like these oh, retro word. people. I was there on ground floor. Me and my oh, wife, wow. we would, I mean, I had dreadlocks at the time. She would like, you know, braid my dreadlocks <laughs> as we were watching the West Wing. So yeah, it was, it was a different era. It was a different era. <laughs> that is so awesome. So when I started reading through your, uh, through your resume, uh, PhD in art history from Princeton, MDiv from Princeton, uh, five time, this was the one that called my eye, five time appointee to the curatorial advisory board of the United States Senate. So there's a character in the West Wing who only shows up like three times. His name is Bernard. And he, um, he's like the curator for the white house. So he's the one who determines what art's going to hang where and where it came, comes from and who it needs to go back to and all that kind of stuff. And he's just this British, this rude, rude British guy. That's always insulting everybody that comes around him. So I didn't know if that was like a life goal of yours to be the dude that walks around the white house, insulting all the employees. Well, I help a Bernard. <laughs> I give him backing <laughs> to be as rude as he wants to be. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, awarded a Commonwealth Fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, written for the New York Times. First things, um, you have a new book coming out soon, if it's not dropped already, with Fortress, Mother of the Lamb, and then the one we'll be talking about today, which is so intriguing to me, The the Everlasting People. So, Matt Milliner, welcome to Uncommentary. Marty, thanks for having me. So um, G.K. Chesterton is uh, a guy that I've always found to be extremely intriguing, uh, so much so that I've only ever read part of anything he's ever written. So it's not like I'm consumed with the dude. But I will say yeah, the people that the are cover, sometimes concern me. I'm like, no, I don't like him that much. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word that is so true uh so before i start rambling on uh, i need to give you an opportunity to to say anything about yourself the kind of personal bio of matt milliner take as long as you need i don't think that's too interesting of a topic so i'm i'm a, i'm a, a middle-aged midwestern medievalist let's put it that way wow okay. <laughs> so yeah so um in the center of of history in the center of the country, in the center of the lifespan. Um, so keep, keeping the levels low, not too exciting, but hopefully I, I bring um, interesting uh, things to people's purview and attention. That's that's what I, what I think I can offer. I can have done a lot of digging and I can bring stuff, sometimes literally out of the earth and say, look at this. Yeah, yeah. very cool. So, uh, so when I saw the cover of your book in, I don't know, some magazine or catalog or something, I mean, I was just immediately arrested by the fact that Chesterton had any kind of relationship with the First Nations people. So you're going to explain a little bit of that mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. so that I don't overstate anything. Uh, but then I read the foreword by Casey Church, and I was just like overwhelmed by the insight and uh, the, the missiological applications. And so um, I'm really, really glad uh, that you're able to, to hang out and talk about this subject today. So... Um, since Thanks you're an for art your interest. guy, this yeah, really yeah. Means a lot. And, and I think everybody who listens is going to be like, when they see it, they may be like, uh, I don't even know what this is going to be about. And then as soon as they start hearing it, they're like, okay, I'm in on this. Um, so that's what the publisher kept saying. <laughs> like, what <laughs> is this exactly? <laughs> well, we're going to sell at least five books from this podcast episode. I Woo! can promise you that. Yep. 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 You'll go down in history because of this. Um, <laughs> 
They so were G. great, K. by Chesterton. the way. Publishers were great. And the first, yes, you have to say that now, uh, G.K. <laughs> Chesterton and the First Nations. So um, what first got you interested in this like subject that a lot of people are not going to know anything about? Yeah. No, that's that's the upside. There's no competition. Like, yeah, you even mentioned that in the book. You have five books on G.K. Chesterton and Native Americans to choose from. I hope you pick mine. Yeah. So, so the I mean, here here's the simple way of putting it. So I could take a thinker that's unfashionable, or or I mean, Chesterton's in some sense is perennial. He just doesn't go away because he was yeah. so ahead of his day. He um, many people credit him with the invention of Orientalism as a wow. critical. I mean, it's like what I thought that was Edward Said. No, <laughs> some say Chesterton was there first in critiquing British fascination with the Orient and kind of mm. um, lampooning it and saying this is problematic. Um, mm -hmm. wildly ahead of his time in so many ways, but a product of his age in other ways. And so the challenge was, okay, Chesterton said some things that are insensitive, um, obviously. Um, he wrote voluminously. That was his job. He just churned yeah. out articles. And so the, the challenge was, okay, well, the easy thing to do is to say, oh, I don't want to touch him. Gross. Look what he said. And I can find those things. That's that's easy enough. But the, the challenge would well what if what if we instead took the best Chesterton and interpreted the worst Chesterton in the light of that? And there's not too mm -hmm. much bad Chesterton, although there is some, and I'm, I'm I'm I wouldn't defend him in that sense. And let's instead I hate to use the word cancel because it just it, it, yeah. it, it eviscerates the conversation, but I'll use in this case anyway. Instead of canceling him say, well, let's uh, creatively redeem him because there's enough of him to do it and apply his insights to race mm -hmm. in a way that brings insight and illumination. A another way of putting it would be to say, look, I can write a book about race and, and, and try to get it in the hands of people that care about race. Well, what good does that do? There's already a million of them and, and they're doing important things. I, I'm And there are people that are way better at it than I am who've experienced mm -hmm. serious races and you should listen to them. What I can offer is let me use a thinker that people who generally tend to not be interested about race, that they gravitate toward and use him to say, hey, here's a new angle. Um, and instead of one more time around the racetrack of critical race theory, just have a book that doesn't mention that at all. Um, yeah. And it, not because I'm afraid of it or I want to avoid it, but simply because I'm a little bit more interested in indigenous mythology as a mm -hmm. explanatory category to understand racism than I am in, in um, theories that the academic world generates, right? What if I went to myth instead? And I just knew of no book like that. I'm like, yeah. it's kind of simple. If I want to understand indigenous Americans, I can take a European theorist and apply a lens to them and say, look, here are the problems. Or I can say, how did they think going back 15,000 years in the land where I live? And the remarkable thing is, thanks to archaeology, we kind of know. It, not perfectly, well, do, do but we have insight. Us, Dr. Milliner. Do enlighten Pardon? us as to what they oh. thought 15,000 years ago. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. These numbers are going – it'll give you a nosebleed. It just – they, they are going. They are. They are uh, going back so fast. The mm. numbers of as to how long humans have been around. And I just made my peace with that a long time ago, um, yeah. in the sense of you know you do those early wrestlings with how does this square with the biblical accounts, and then you realize it actually squares better 
not worse. With the, it's not a matter of lowering a view of the scripture. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, of yeah, raising it, in fact, mm-hmm. in order to acclimate um, this data as to how long human beings have been around. And the numbers are alarmingly uh, going earlier and earlier in on this continent. I'm not just talking mm-hmm. about Africa and Europe. I'm talking about here. And, and, um, and I, I'm speaking as a North American. So it's starting to finally trickle out. I mean, Paulette Steves wrote a book called The Indigenous Paleolithic. She just charts sites all over. Some go back 100,000 years. Wow. I'm, I don't quite know. There's one in San Diego, and I've I looked feel at that it. Old sometimes. <laughs> right? But it's like, you know, how did these uh, mammoth tusks end up the way? There clearly seems to be some kind of human intervention here. Yeah. And, and so what do you do with numbers that go back that far? Again, I, I'm, I can't test. I mean, that, there's, that particular site is wildly controversial. What's not controversial is, is 15,000 years ago, yeah. um, so, which, um, which blows the Clovis states away. So in other words, you better have a, a rich theology to grapple with how long humans have been on this continent that you and I happen to be guests on if you want to live here with integrity. It's that simple. And Chesterton was the great uh, angle of doing that in the early 20th century, so just applying it to the 21st. So in your book, you mention, and in fact, the uh, Casey Church, who writes the forward, mentions um, early, not early, but early in uh, white intrusion in, or white arrival into North, uh, what would become the United States. Um that there were partially as a result of David uh, Brainerd and his brother and partially as a result of others, uh, an enormous number of uh, Native American Christians or indigenous peoples who were actually believers. They had accepted Christ and were our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that did not always turn out so well. Um, exactly. How exactly does art reflect that? Does the, the mythology uh, yeah. reflect that? What, what are we talking about here? So, I'll just back up two inches and, and then I'll jump into that. So in the sense of like, and for readers who aren't familiar with this, Chesterton at a time where people were debunking cave paintings and saying they're evidence of primitive man who had mm-hmm. not evolved to the status of Western European white people, right? He was defending those cave paintings against their detractors in Europe mm-hmm. in the early 20th century against progressives saying in this deeply, richly conservative way, these are evidence of people made in the image of God. And so the, the application of that, I hope, to indigenous cave paintings and markings and, and pictographs and petroglyphs in North America should be pretty obvious, right? It's like, mm-hmm. of course, he's like one of our first Christian thinkers to do that, so let's apply it to this. Um, and so, so again, just the transfer. And he he didn't have the evidence that we have now, um, because we do. He was my, inst- my instinctual like I reached for. I needed a tool to understand these. I reached for the Chesterton tool, you know, on mm-hmm. my shelf. I'm like, this will help me. And when it comes to um, the Christian Native Americans, it's like it's not only a large number. It's like sort of normative. It's kind of abnormal for. I mean, you often have very uh, vocal hardcore anti-Christian Native Americans who, of course, have every right to be angry and to exist and to have their opinions. But the (laughs) normal approach is, look, we've been at this for 500 years. We accepted the gospel, um, you know, even though you did such a horrible job of bringing it to us. And we accepted it on our own terms. All of that scholarship doesn't need to be done. It has been done. Mm. And 
it is an affront to your typical um, default liberal opinion of, uh, oh yeah, those evil Christian missionaries came along and like beat away the native. It's like, actually, that's that's what the popular perception is. But all of the, not all of it, but an enormous amount of the scholarship in the last 20 years has just had a field day, like shooting fish in a barrel with mm. that caricature and saying like, well, what do you do with this person and this person and this person and this person and this person, all of whom use Christianity to attack colonialism? Like what? Like that, mm. all of that's been done. And so the whole point, of the, it's like, I just found all this information and it's just so common. Not Christian scholars, just scholars saying, yeah, isn't it horrible how many archival losses we had because a bunch of white people went to the archives and said, I want an exotic Native American. As soon as I see Jesus, I dismiss it. And it was aggressive. I mean, and I mean aggressive editing. The most famous example, uh, famous in my mind because I still can't get over it, is the great classic Western. I mean, the the immediate... You're going to talk uh, of true course, grit, right? true grit, exactly. The sackets. <laughs> exactly. Well, after that, right, close second. Oh, okay. okay. Is, is, is Black Elk Speaks by John Neidhart. So John Neidhart goes out and meets Black Elk, the great, soon to be canonized Native American. Dude, I think I actually downloaded that PDF somewhere. I'm almost positive I have that thing. I haven't read it, but I think I have it. It's it's a classic account. And and so, and what he does wow. is so he so he is a a a, a white literary theorist who a writer who who um, is used as we can imagine a mid 20th century man of letters would do uh, he is literature is his religion and so when black elk starts telling him visions that are in that are tainted with Jesus stuff Neidhart literally edits it out to the mm. point where Black Elk says, yeah, let me tell you something. Well, I was on uh, Harney Peak, which is now, by the way, called Black Elk Peak, which is a miracle that, that <laughs> got through the South Dakota Congress. It's an extraordinary thing. Every Christian American should rejoice in that renaming. Wow. I mean, it's unbelievable. That arguably is, if you are a Catholic, I'm not, but that is, I think, a just demonstrable miracle toward his canonization. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that happened. Okay. It happened in like 2016. And so, so Black Elk is on that peak. He has a vision of a man, and I'm not joking, with holes in the palms of his hands. Mm. A vision of a man who's neither white nor is he an Indian, and he has holes in the palms of his hands. And he says, "All things belong to me. You must, serve, you know, things like that." Um, this, this, and, and so Neidhart's like, "Yeah, I don't like that holes in the hands part. I'm just going to tuck that away." And then Raymond DeMalley, University of Indiana, a great Native American scholar, a scholar of Native America, did the archives. He's like, what? You took that out? Right. Because a bunch of New Age people who want to go chill in the desert don't want to get a buzzkill when they read that it's actually Jesus that's showing up to Black Elk. And then Neidhart ends Black Elk Speaks with, the hoop of the nation is broken. Those are the closing words. And doesn't that fit beautifully into, wow. you know, I mean, we're, we're both white men. Oh, we feel so bad for them. Look what we did. Oh, it's, and that um, self-soothing kind of pity, people just camp out there for a lifetime and they don't like it to be tinkered with because it's kind mm. of oh, it's just the same way that like uh, depression sometimes can be self-focus and, and actually self, a form of selfishness, right? 
it just enables us to linger there. And it's a lie. Um, whereas mm -hmm. the truth is, the hoop of the nation, yes, it was broken, but you know what? Lakota are doing pretty well right now, right? They're, they're thriving. <laughs> they, 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 they didn't get killed by the American government. They're still doing yeah. their thing. And Black Elk goes on and converts 500 people to wow. Catholicism. That is and amazing. so it's like, so, okay. So, so in regard to answering your question, this is not, that's a famous example, but I could point to you to examples in Tennessee in Illinois in New Jersey, where I'm from. And uh, I went to a lot of schooling in New Jersey and never mm -hmm. heard about any of the successful brain nerd missions amongst the native Americans, the Lenape there, never a word, not a breath, not a, a, wow. an inkling of this. And all of a sudden, we're all interested in race, as we should be, right? Not all of a sudden for some of us, sure, but it's like, sure. well, okay, good. Glad, you know, the wider population is paying attention. Shouldn't we care about this kind of stuff? And, and lo and behold, the kind of the secular approach to Native America just doesn't hold water because mm. you have this rich coloration of Christianity. And I promise I'm going to let you ask a question, but I'll just do one last pass here. <laughs> Is that, so, so the thing that, you know, I'm thinking of a person who's growing up in, in this country right now, kind of after summer 2019, after summer 2020, thinking about all these matters and saying, what do I do with the fact of with the, this thing called America, right? And I think one of the answers is, of course, there are many, but one of them is, hey, okay, you think it's like just, you know, Christian America, right? Well, if it was just Christian America, then if a Native American would become Christian, then they'd be safe, right? Theoretically. Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, you're on board. Thank you. Okay. Christian America. <laughs> and let's just keep going, right? No, but no. Their conversion to Christianity did absolutely nothing. In fact, sometimes it exacerbated their persecution. Mm. And what does that tell us? That there's more at work in America than just the Holy Spirit, right? Sure. There's these other powerful spirits. And I use Native American mythology to try to access and understand that in conversation with Native Americans. I'm not just appropriating. I've had long conversations with them and study about this. Yeah. And I was like, let's identify these other spirits. And so... Once you identify those spirits, then you can talk about how Jesus can oppose, can and does oppose those spirits in the name of a truly multinational Christianity. Mm -hmm. That is the story of Christianity on this continent. It's, you know what? Guess what? Sorry, everybody. It's the story of evangelicalism. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say, oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's the story of evangelicalism. There is a wonderful So evangelicalism book. was birthed out of the indigenous peoples? Not part of it, not all of it, okay. but there's a wonderful book called The Indian Great Awakening. And all of the things that Mark Knoll and others would say, hey, here's this thing called evangelicalism. It has its root in the great, roots in the Great Awakening. All of a sudden, you have countless Native Americans who are obviously identified without disputation by historians to those evangelical movements who are adopting mm -hmm. the movement as their own. Wow. And that's, that's in the 1700s. And and this and so, so the the point that I tried to make about I, I knew I knew of no book like this, but I said so when I became an evangelical, when I was, <laughs> excuse me, fifteen, in New Jersey, you might say, oh, you got you know on the on the late you know, wave of this kind of horrific white nationalist movement, 
But we never really talked about that. We just talked about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And and the, I would see the kind of the white nationalist stuff as kind of an infection an, that overlayers over that, that I wouldn't deny. I know it's there. But instead, I want to say, as a way of defying the kind of white nationalism people are concerned about, you know what happened to me when I was 15? I participated in a movement that goes back to the same land hundreds of years before where Lenape Indians embraced the same Jesus. Mm. That's what happened to me in this place we call New Jersey that the Native Americans call and st- called and still call Turtle Island. Mm. And, I'm a, and I'm a guest. I'm, I, I, how many people think of our country in this way? And when we do that big kind of, it's some heavy lifting of completely reconceptualizing the way we think about this continent, all of a sudden the necessary complaints, and I'm glad people are writing books that are complaining um, and pointing out what's wrong, it, it gives you this much deeper Pentecostal solution as in the sense of all tongues, tribes, and nations. Yeah. And uh, I, I, like to, I like to joke, <laughs> I should have called it uh, Jesus and Mad Anthony Wayne. Um, be, because I don't think it shows up in, in the book, Jesus and John Wayne. I've, I've read it and I looked at it, I couldn't find it. But that's why John Wayne was called John Wayne, because of Mad Anthony Wayne and his victory against the Native Americans. He was so you called just go, John Wayne because nobody wants to be called Marion Michael Morrison. <laughs> that too, that too. Uh, but, it, but it's like you go back and you say, and, but people like don't know who Anthony Wayne <clears throat> is for the most part. But when you do that, you see, oh, here's this masculinity that kind of asserted itself against the Native Americans, but in some ways was honored. That's the mm-hmm. complexity of Native Amer- yeah. of, of the Treaty of Greenville and those realities that he was part of. And you just say, let me just, re- just rewind the tape, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump in here for just a second and remind everybody that they're listening to Uncommentary. This is Marty Duran. I'm talking to Matt Milliner about his book, The Everlasting People, G.K. Chesterton and the First Nations, among other things we're talking about. And we'll be <laughs> right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. Or 
Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right, Matt, what is the sign of Jonah? If it's not being swallowed by a great fish and spit out on the Nineveh shore three days later, <laughs> what is the sign of Jonah? You know, isn't that just the, it, it, it maybe is one of the most privileged symbols, privileged in a very good way, um, in all of human history. Because it is one of the few great archetypes slash symbols slash historical truths, right? All of these things blend together. When I say symbol, it's not because I don't believe in the historical truth. It's because I add to the historical mm -hmm. truth in a rich and pl with plenitude, not with a reductive mm -hmm. understanding of history. And why is it so privileged? Because, of course, this is one of the few Old Testament motifs, Hebrew Bible motifs, that Jesus Christ specifically identifies himself as. Now, we know, of course, it was pervasive throughout the entire Hebrew Bible, the entire Old Testament testifies to Jesus. I believe that as a Christian. I, when I pray the Psalms, I end with glory be to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That's mm -hmm. intentional. And so, but it's just so wonderful that he singles out this one. That's who I am. That's who I am. That's who I am. I'm Jonah, right? I'm going into the valley mm -hmm. and I'm coming out again. And that is... Yes, fulfilled in the Paschal mystery of the death and resurrection of Christ, but it also, because not in spite of that, not in replacement of that, but because of that, it rebounds in so many different ways. It can be the story of your own soul, right? In the sense that you are crucified with Christ and you rise. It can be the story of this land. And that's the argument that I make. So I'm riffing on, of course, the biblical motif. I'm riffing off Thomas Merton's great book, Sign of Jonas, one of his early kind of published journals when he was at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. And it's, just a, it's a great book. And so uh, by drawing upon that, I say I need something <laughs> other than um, contemporary theory, right? Which, again, just doesn't excite me that much. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. I, I I'm, I'm a historian. I like to think. If you're with, a fan of E equals MC squared, do not call Matt. He is not interested. <laughs> but the, oh, I, I, I will refuse any digression there, as, as tempting as it is, because I'd love to talk about that. But, but the, so the idea being is that let's look at the sign of Jonah as this great archetype and let's see the continent and understand it in that way. And when we do, we can see this process of, I mean, the, the whale's not a good thing, right? The whale's mm -hmm. death, the, the, the fish. It's, this is not good, but Christ destroys it. And so all that I'm saying is instead of saying, let me pick up a book called post-colonialism. Ah, let me now apply this. And it's like, come on, it's just so academic. I want to say, I want to use that sign of Jonah to understand the process of what we call academics call colonialism. That is the process mm -hmm. of settlement of this land. Mm -hmm. And so when we see the, when we understand the myth in that way, capital M myth in the C.S. Lewis sense of myth, right? Then we see my ancestors who I don't hate, by the way. Mm -hmm. I've, I mean, I, I, I know that they are sinful, right? I'm very aware of that as I am. Um, and did they benefit from coming here? Absolutely. <clears throat> did they benefit in ways that 
Native Americans paid for? Absolutely. Mm. Were they um, just on easy street and was trying to get greedy and rich? They were refugees. They were mm. poor, uh, scum of the earth refugees who were doing everything they could. Does that excuse them? Not at all. Does that humanize and complicate the story? It does. So mm. my ancestors are tucked in there, one of the cells of this huge thing called colonialism that just steamrolls the, the, the First Nations that were here for 20,000 years, however, however long we want to go back. And, and is, it, is it just this Machiavellian evil plot? I think it's a power. It's a force. It's a principality. And is it simply a demon? Mm, not so sure. I don't know enough about the spiritual realm to say that. I believe in demons, but I don't know how it works up there. Right? right. I know it's real and I know it's dangerous. And I know that when I look at the news and I see Russia conquering Ukraine, I think, oh, there's a spirit there too. Yeah. And it's not good. So something's happening on this continent that my ancestors benefit from. The reason I'm breathing and living today is because of that. And so I want to understand it. And it just so happens that all throughout North America, there are these images of underwater panthers. The indigenous name for them is Mishipeshu. You'll see it sometimes spelled in different ways. And you can find them all over the place. Ogawa Rock in Canada on Lake Superior is a great example. And so this, this underwater panther is this spirit, this force for Native Americans and this is where like sometimes white scholars are like, oh, but, 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 but don't theorize about it because it's theirs and you can't touch it. And it's like, look, I've, I, I, I felt that way for years. And then I finally said, I want to put this to use because it's kind of insulting not to use it, right? It's kind of insulting to take my European theories and overlay it onto it. I want to, and, and, and who did I learn this from? Marty, no surprise coming, Chesterton. Mm. He taught me to look at pagan myth as a Christian without negativity. He taught me that Pan doesn't have to be bad. He taught me that Apollo can be fulfilled, not just negated in Christ. So I was tutored by Chesterton by reading his great book, The Everlasting Man, to have a positive view of the Greco-Roman heritage, but not a naive one. He also knows there's the Carthaginians and human sacrifice and there was that in North America too. Mm -hmm. And we have to be honest about that. Just like there's human sacrifice in our culture right now, right? Mm -hmm. So we put all this together. And I want to say that this process of settlement is a force of sorts. And I'm going to identify it as this beast that we could tether to the sign of Jonah that consumes nations, and so I tell the story of these Christian Native Americans getting consumed, eaten by the beast uh, that whose head at one point was Andrew Jackson with the Indian removal policy. Off yeah. you go. I don't care yeah. if one of you saved my life. And indeed, a Native American did save his life. But he didn't care because mm -hmm. they were out. They were gone. And you had evangelicals like Jeremiah Everts who gave themselves tuberculosis trying to fight Jackson's policy to no avail and died. So it wasn't just white wow. people were I mean, it wasn't just Native Americans who were consumed. But so you have the consuming of these nations and here it comes, right? What happens when Jesus, Jesus identifies <clears throat> with his people as his body. And so what's happening with these Christian Native Americans is Jesus is going into the belly of the whale and he comes out again. 
in the form of the Renaissance, the revival of indigenous America, which is very Christian, if you look, mm. um, that is happening in our country right now. And you and I get to be a part of it, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> and, and most people are like, well, I don't want to go to a powwow. It's kind of like I go to church. It's like you might find it's kind of like church because yeah. so many times it's beginning in, in the name of Jesus. And then other, this is what's great about going to a powwow. Other people are like, yeah, but I, I hate America. I'm going to go to a powwow. America just does this bad stuff. And they go there and it starts with the, the veterans from Vietnam processing with an eagle head and the American flag. It's like, ah, it offends everybody. <laughs> because they're not us. Yeah. And just understanding that has been the single greatest joy that mm -hmm. has been uh, contributed to my life as a North American. It's almost but, worth not having been taught it. It, it is so wonderful to make this discovery that it's that almost better than getting a good education the whole way. <laughs> Where I feel like I learned well. I kind of feel bad for the people that are learning it from the ground up because it's like I, I'm kind of – the fact that I didn't know is what led to the late-in-life thrill of discovery. Mm. Well, the book is The Everlasting People, G.K. Chesterton and the First Nations by Matthew J. Milliner. It's available everywhere uh, from IVP. Uh, so you have a website that I love the name of, Millinerd, <laughs> M-I-L-L-I-N-E-R-D.com, uh, -L -L -E right? That's me. And then uh, I just found out you're on Twitter, at Millinerd. Yeah. And so uh, any, any other social media or online presence where people can find you? You know, I'm mostly active on Twitter. I try, basically, yeah. my Instagram is trying to put attention to my Twitter. That's where, I, that's what I, you know, for whatever reason, that's, that's yeah. how I like to, you know, if I write something, like I have something today I wrote, I just, you know, announce it on that. Yeah. But very um, good. Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. Appreciate your time. And it was really good. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com. Uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.